Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. And suddenly, man, it's time for church. And that means it's time for you to jump into the rotation. It was a different beat this time. Yeah. Well, here we are back at 1714 West 7th Street in uh, Ybor City, where it all began. My name is Gary Stein. I'm the political director for Suncoast Normal here in Florida, and probably the only one who's really qualified to talk to guests today, only because of the fact that I come from the only city in the United States that has a Canadian city south of it, that being Detroit. Now, I have here with me <laughs> Carlos Ermita, who is, of course, <clears throat> our executive director here of, of Florida, and the only person who is able to have a master's in, in business administration and a minor in theology, which makes him a perfect person to be an atheist. <laughs> and, and, and above my here, heating above the beltway, only when they have their shirts at, 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 their, at their knees, if they have their pants at their knees, that didn't work out well, do it. <laughs> Carlos, um, Chris Kano. <laughs> Boy, I got to tell you. They, got, they put, take, they put, take a second. Take a sip. There, there must be a, a sativa. Yeah, in this like you got to chill for a second. You know, you got to take a few breaks every now. Got to watch out for that franchise coffee, man. That's probably you. the truest thing you've ever said about me. <laughs> <laughs> and in the secret square, right underneath here, we have a very special guest, originally from Ottawa, who, who took over the Canadian cannabis industry and canopy growth, and is now working through Gage and all sorts of other industries, including hemp. Mr. Bruce Linton. How you doing, Bruce? Well, not, I'm not on a roll like you are this morning, but uh, I like your energy. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Don't worry. I, I calm down after a while. It's whatever, whenever the RSO kicks in, I guess. <laughs> Something I learned from him. But uh, Chris, what is going on right now over in, in D.C.? Well, you know, D.C. is a hot spot right now for change. Um, you know, one of the things that recently came out was a survey from cannabis companies citing the lack of banking access as the top issue facing the industry. And this week, the United States House of Representatives advanced the Safe Banking Act as part of the American Competes Act, uh, which is, you know, an overall spending bill, which will allow of state licensed cannabis related businesses to access banks and other financial institutions. And so that in itself will revolutionize uh, the way the cannabis industry is going to be able to do business. And, you know, it, it still remains to go into the Senate. This is the sixth time that the House has advanced this to the Senate, either as a standalone uh, bill or as some type of amendment. So uh, now that it's been tucked into this vital piece of domestic spending, uh, we'll see where the Senate ends up voting on it. We've been so laser focused on trying to get banking as part of the industry here in California, I mean, in the United States, rather. Boy, it goes on there. But I think it is a definitely two-edged sword. Now, Bruce, you've been heavily involved in the financing of, of uh, cannabis companies all around the, uh, the world, and especially here in, in uh, the United States. Would the SAFE Act be a plus or a minus 
for the financing of new businesses going forward? Yeah, it's, you know, we keep asking for things, but without a couple other things together, I don't know they get us what we want. So like you can get access to financing, obviously companies are growing rapidly, but um, then you run it and you're still paying excess tax with 280. And so I, I just look at these things and say, ultimately does, does what we end up with allow us to have a state by state operation where there are kind of walls around the state yet you can use all financial instruments in the state if that's what we end up with and a normal tax rate terrific uh, i i just the whole piecemeal thing concerns me and i, I think banking's got to come along but the piecemeal thing i we could end up where somehow we end up with the fda as our boss uh sec looking into everything and take six steps back and i, I just i worry about getting little pieces well i know you you had to live under the guise of you know, canada health for a while and we, we, we all have some regulators we have to deal with at, at one point in time. And what I have seen in the, uh, the cannabis industry here in the United States is that they have built the whole co concept of financing through cash raises and things of that sort in the markets outside of the FDIC banks, which makes you unable to go to the bank for loans and things of that sort. And that has kind of made it so the bigger players have a much easier access to cash than the smaller players. Have you seen the same thing? Well, a bit, but like, let, let, pull on the string. So suppose um, six times lucky and this thing passes. Now you meet with a banker and the banker is looking at tangible assets, cash flows, and wants to understand how much capital they can advance you in the form of a debt. They're going to ask a question like, um, who are your competitors and where's competitive pressure on your business? And I'm, I worry that we don't have a good answer to that that's good enough for bankers, meaning uh, is there going to be interstate commerce as a result of safe banking. Because if you're a lender, you'd like to kind of know, are these assets at risk or are they, do they have a moat around them? And so you guys can answer. I'm just, I'm the Canadian guy sitting here going, um, last time I felt, I hope the government shows up and, and makes things better was never. <laughs> and so um, I, I'm just concerned on these little peace points because banks are not super easy to deal with and they're going to ask hard questions. And you found that, that, that the uh, not having the banks around gave us a little bit more freedom to be able to, to build the scale at a much easier pace than, than if we had too much regulation? Well, I don't know if it's been easier, but it's been possible. And so w with the art of possible, a lot has happened. And I don't like how a lot of it is, but I'm frankly, I'm more concerned that um, we get manipulated out of an okay environment now into one which uh, compresses the opportunity for a whole bunch of folks because it does become more open interstate, because it does have regulations that need a lot of lawyers and folks to deal with FDA. <laughs> I, I just, um, one of the organizations I'm involved with spends a bit of time thinking about what would the best public policy be if somebody politically said they want to do this? Like, how do we want this to roll out? Um, because in Canada it worked okay, but it's not perfect. Germany is going to be interesting, right? They're going to have a party, but they currently have no supply chain, really, almost no production in Germany for cannabis, but they won't be able to import it for their party. And so it's each of these things have weird, weird scenarios. It sounds a little bit like what they do over in the, in the Netherlands, where everybody thinks that it's, it's an open end, end party there, but it's actually more of a, I would say, uh, an, an era of... of uh, yeah. 
Bruce, with what what you're saying about banking, right? Like, I, I'm a small business owner, and um, I agree with you. Like, for for me, the idea of raising capital for my business, the bank's probably going to be my last option, right? Um, but I I still have to sit here and wonder, like, is isn't wouldn't like cannabis businesses being able to like actually like raise capital raise capital through a bank open so much more options, like maybe. Uh, small business associations or, or different things like that. Um, and plus, you know, like the whole idea, like, I mean, th- being able for the cannabis business to actually like put their money, their actual cash assets into, into the bank seems to be like, like it's going to like really like uh, bring these business practices down to like, like to, to really make them better, refine them really lean operations by like being able to like actually do their, their cash business in, in a proper way. Right. I, I think so. But, but I'm, <laughs> I guess the way I'm a little bit cautious is it may disproportionately benefit the already sophisticated business. Mm-hmm. And it, so if it disproportionately benefits the already sophisticated business, that means that if you're not one of that cohort, this might actually be a punch in the head. And so I don't mind that somebody swings at me, but I would like to have a more comprehensive conclusion. Like there will not be interstate commerce. Okay, small businesses now actually don't get killed. Um, This is going to apply, do you have to be medical or medical and rec? Like to whom will this banking access privilege be granted? Um, Will there be any federal backup? Like if you're a farmer in any country, if you're a producer of anything agriculture, do you get all kinds of great government programs? Yes. Yeah. Are any of those coming along for the cannabis producers? Um, so I, I just, it's a, it's a, it's a step worth fighting for, I guess. Um, I, you know, I've I never thought about it in that way. That yeah. that leads like a very interesting perspective because like I, I hear uh, Safe Act and I'm like, yes, we won finally and then like the fact that we're like so, so like the time that the safe act is coming out really does leave a lot to to wonder like you know it yeah. really it really can like disproportionately affect like the big businesses that's crazy yeah. never thought about that well it's kind of like a I wanted to chime in. Bruce brings up a good point in that we still have not addressed the Schedule One status of cannabis, and yeah. because they haven't done that, the supremacy clause still applies, which bans interstate commerce of cannabis. So if we and we have a, if we don't take care of the Schedule One status and we have the Safe Banking Act, there's no way you can move products across state lines without breaking the law. And, and, and that we have found a good state- thing. Like it might not be a bad thing. Because if, if you said everything's completely a platform of do everything everywhere, use all the leverage of financial instruments and use the most optimized environments in which you can produce it, it may be a catastrophic overnight shift in where production assets are optimally located. It may, you know, you know what I mean? It, so like, I'm not slowing progress. I'm saying, could we not have a conversation about what we think are the three levers of success? in this sector, because I think there's, there is safe banking. There's a definition of what states do, and there's a division between medical and rec and who's going to be the boss of each. Mm-hmm. And you don't think anybody could be the boss of both? Well, I don't know. Cause the, the, the folks who deliver the, the booze that don't make it and don't sell it, I think they'd like to have a chunk of the business, right? So they, 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 they like to say to the government, I promise you, you'll always collect your taxes. And I think that business model could actually just be replaced by a computer and a scan code. So I don't know that you need a third-party middle person, but they're they're going to be pretty active. 
on uh, medical, I, I don't know if the FDA would want to touch it or want to stay away from it. But like the question really becomes, if you're dealing with a banker and the banker says, well, how do I know that I'm not going to lose all my money because you, you know, make claims and get sued? Who, who, to whom do I look for comfort as a banker? Remember, you don't become a banker because you want crazy. You become a banker because you like payroll privileges and you like to know when your pension starts. And so um, I just, th these, these outcomes lead to a series of questions that I'm not sure get you the wallet you want unless you're the big and sophisticated. Now, we here in Florida have a vertical mandate, which a lot of people have been railing against for some time. And yet we look at other states that have horizontals and verticals, like Oklahoma and like Oregon, where they end up having so much increase in, in, in supply that they can't even, can't even consume it anymore. And of course, with our interstate commerce, it has to stay in that state. So right now, I've been told that in Oklahoma, every single person in Oklahoma has access to a couple, a couple pounds of cannabis right now that's already grown and cured and sitting there waiting for them to buy, even though most of them won't or, or can't. And the same thing's going on with Oklahoma. So obviously there's, there's some glitches and there's actually some need in some cases for some kind of guardrails to make sure that the company, that the, the industry does not go off the rails, so to speak. Maybe, you know what, like, but again, we're hoping bureaucrats and regulators help us find the optimal balance. Canada, you know, Canada has gone through this cycle and there's, there's still more crying to happen, right? They started off where everything had to be in a building and the building had to be fortified and there could be no odor emitted. Then they allowed greenhouses, less fortified, kind of less odor, but still ser seriously regulated. And then one day they said, you know what? Field crops are awesome. Could you just try to maybe put a fence around it? And yeah. the effect of that is um, you can buy an extracted milligram for like less than a Canadian penny. And it's probably 85% of the total crop produced in Canada now is stuff that's going to be extracted from milligrams. And there's billions of dollars of inventory that probably isn't going to have a long life or a, a happy future. Um, but give it a year. And I think that shakes out. Um, so I, I, I don't know that, you know, a lot of people, if I get one more pitch where their brilliant idea is that they're going to get GMP, GAP. So think of the international certification so that they can ship from somewhere where it's federally permissible to Germany, my ears will bleed because like everybody, I, at one point in time, I used to explain that I'd, I'd been to 16 countries that were going to manage cannabis and all but one of them wanted to be an exporter of cannabis and none of them wanted to be an importer. And the only one that wanted to be an importer wasn't thinking about their self-interest um, was Poland. And so like, at the everybody reality- Everybody wants to be a cartel. Oh, everybody's <laughs> going like to export. That's what that tells me. Yeah. It's like everybody wants to export it out of the country, but we don't, we don't want this shit here. Yeah, well, and you make access horrific, right? So like yeah. you can grow and extract and create a mountain of the product in Colombia, but God help you if you want to be a patient. And so um, what I just find is that these tools of commerce and then the political decisions and things are really mismatched still. Like you can't all be exporters. Yeah, when, when, the, when the European Union first opened up, I heard all these comments that you can't possibly have a uh, conglomeration of companies, countries that have Every single country has a different sense of politics. Every have a different, different idea in regards to uh, to commerce and things of that sort. So here's a really hard question: Of all the countries you've had a chance to visit, including the United States and Canada, which country does it the best? Um, which does it the best? Oh. 
Um, so there's a textured bunch of stuff. Like, so if I want to be able to know bioavailability, how, how can I take blood and check? I don't care if it's human or animal. Czech Republic is pretty rational place to deal with. I've never um, heard of the Czech Republic being rational. That's interesting. Yeah, no, no, but I'm saying, so like you, there's, there's you, in this sort of game, and I don't care if it's this or psychedelics, you have to geography hunt to say, what can I, what is my goal and where can I do it? So like when we wanted to get a drug on drug analysis of cannabinoids and a diversity of things, Germany was the most efficient place to do that. Um, if, if I, if, if I ran any place and I could flip things upside down overnight, I would run Greece and I would start a party immediately. Wreck would happen instantly. And the reason is um, at one point in time in about 2018, um, Canopy had more investment than Greece did as foreign direct investment. So if you stop and think about it, one company had more cash provided to it than an entire country did. Now, if you're running a country and you say, well, how do we do in creating jobs that year? Probably shitty. Because if you do not have foreign direct investment, you do not have jobs. And so the reason I'd start a party is you can't import cannabis for recreational purposes. So if you have a party, it means people are going to spend money and build big facilities to create products that the recreational market will supply. Then you take, I don't know, 10 or 20% of the, the taxes off of that and you create a medical system in Greece. And the reason I would is if you said, well, who used plants to try to be healthy over the, like, the last thousands of years, you'd probably think Greece, Greeks, and Chinese. So like plant-based medicine isn't a completely ill fit with their long history. It's just they have a current period where they think they're pious. And so I think that they actually would be a terrific natural place of origin for plant-based medicines that would be the result of getting foreign capital in because you have a party. And as one of my friends said, Bruce, you've been advocating this, like, if there's going to be a beach that actually has beer and weed and it's legal, I'm retiring and going there. <laughs> and so the reason that matters is 40% of the GDP of Greece is dependent on tourism. So if you've already had this shit kicked out of you because of COVID and everything else, wouldn't you think coming on strong with that next thing? So all of a sudden you get more tourists, you get more foreign direct investment, you can fund medical products. And before you know it, you're actually kind of in the front of something rather than waiting for the you know EU to just give you more money. And like of all the commodities in the United States, it seems like the one that 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 had the most amount of growth during the COVID seems to have been the cannabis industry here in the United States, as opposed to the other right. ones. Number one, because we were essential that that kept Carlos open for the majority of the time. Yep, and and it just keeps on growing, even though there is so many so many restrictions on it. Yeah, it, it, it's quite interesting in that, that it was essential, but it's also, if you look at the growth of the businesses, they're unlike some of the tech companies, which grew really terrifically because nobody could go anywhere and they had to just do this all day. And then they've fallen <laughs> back. We're not seeing the same falling back. Like states may have a little bit, but like there's still, there's still a growth world for companies participating in the cannabis business at a, a fairly, I'll call it uniform rate. And the politics are getting back to it. Like I just saw something yesterday. Is it correct that Mississippi yep, is no is. longer treating access to cannabis as a hanging event? Like I, I, that's that's yeah. that caught me off guard. The governor signed the bill this week. Yep. Like that that. But so the momentum is back on this. What we're not seeing is internationally the same momentum. So like Germany said, we're going to have a party, but like I wouldn't go and get your fancy clothes yet because it's probably three years till it happens. Well, here in Florida, you know, we, we were able to pass amendment two back in, in uh, 2016 that 
by 71%. They gave us our entire industry right now, at least medically. But as we're trying to go on to the next step to adult use, we're finding all sorts of uh, roadblocks, yeah. including the legislature who saw Amendment 2 as a reason to go ahead and change the entire citizen initiative process to make it harder and harder and harder for any initiative uh, to, to go through. And that's where we are right now. They, they, they literally saw, oh, my God, we let this go through. It's time to shut that door, time to pull the trap door open. And that is yeah. where we are right now. Now, in Mississippi, they passed it by ballot, but they went and took it back to the legislature, and the legislature actually finished the job and got it done. Here in Florida, <clears throat> they, they blocked us from being able to go on a ballot initiative. And the legislature <coughs> is saying, oh, no, it smells putrid because the governor says it smells putrid. And so, therefore, we're not going to move forward. Well, you know, so I, I'm fixated on New York. And, and the reason is, uh, if you're not in America and you, you look at America, where, where's one of the two or three first spots that you say, wow, what's, what's going on in New York? What's going on in California? Like, you don't say, how's it going in, you know, Mississippi? You, you, <laughs> this is an iconic city in an iconic state. Like, and it what's has- up in Delaware? Yo, yeah, how's it going in Delaware? Are all 11 customers super happy? Um, and don't don't yell at me for not being, I've never been to some of these places, but so I think the, the imagery of what New York does, I think will cascade globally as much or more than any other geography. I think so. For the longest time, I was one of those people in Florida that made uh, money off of, like selling the industry coming here to Florida. Um, we, I, I hosted many seminars with Cannabis Career Institute, Florida, uh, Cannabis Coalition, whatever it is, right? I think at this point, and I even see it in, uh, you said that you were in town for, in Florida for a cannabis event. I think at this point, cannabis events are starting to kind of adopt mushrooms and psychedelics yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, uh, in order to kind of stay relevant, I think honestly, to be honest with you, I think, and, and you started off today, kind of saying like the Safe Act kind of really benefits big business. I think at this point, the cannabis industry is—it's hard to 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 get into it. I have a small business, and I I own one hemp store in Ybor City, Florida. <laughs> you know, where I, it all began. I don't know. I don't know how how big of a part of the cannabis industry that I can be. You know, I'm still going to try. I'm going to, you know, that's my dream to be a big part in this industry. But, you know, I it, do you have any advice for somebody that wants to be a part of this industry? Do you have like I, it seems almost like it's impossible at this point that you just have to like say, hey, like, you know, m maybe I could do something in the mushroom world or something like that. Well, so I, I actually scratched down a little bit two two thoughts. Um, I like the words you're using by calling it hemp. Yeah. Because if you said, well, I'm in the CBD business, I'd say, you're sure you're not in the hemp business? <laughs> um, and the reason for that is that... I, I, most I, of my money is sold is is based off of selling Delta 8 at this point and TACO and HHC and, and all this all these different cannabinoids. You know, it's not just CBD is a small part of my business at this point. But uh, so I, I think um, I, I tried to make... Uh, a thing called a special purpose acquisition company, which is essentially you make a listing on an exchange NASDAQ and you go and present to people and say, if you give me like your $150 million, I'll come back to you. I can't spend it, but I'll come back to you with a really good idea. And they give you the 150 million bucks. And what was going to be my really good idea was um, accumulate a number of hemp conversion assets that could land really in two portfolios. I'll call it food to pharma 
and uh, disruptive industrial. Mm -hmm. And um, scoured the globe, looked at over 100 companies and failed to find a combination, a bouquet of these companies that could actually have enough girth and value and be able to list and, and, and operate an accounting basis. Um, so after about seven, eight months of looking at over 100 companies, um, did something totally different because it was not going to be a hemp serious industrial company come out of this. So instead, the, the, right now, the, 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 all the cash and the activity ended up with a really good Israeli driverless car technology that Elon should use because it actually works better than his. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's listed. So. I've heard some recent studies showing that a lot of things work better than this. Well, you mean, Elon's right. Like people don't want to drive all the times. They want to drive sometimes. And even though sometimes they're driving, they aren't always paying attention. So it's always good to have some better technology. But so this LiDAR company, but I give you that in that um, I think that the hemp field literally and figuratively could be the most positively disruptive field crop in the US over the next five years. Uh -huh. And that there's a massive window of opportunity between the field and the fender of your car. There's a massive opportunity between the field and fantastic protein rich pasta. There's a whole bunch of utilizations of this fiber that are un unrealized. And I think you're in a business right now. I business to me is like swinging through the jungle. What you got to do is find the next vine before you start going backwards because backwards has a bad outcome. And so you're in, you're in the game, you're swinging through the jungle, baby. What you got to do is say, how do I grab onto something that fits between the field and the fender, the field and the pasta? Because that's where I see huge opportunity. And what I see in the United States right now is we've got a huge amount of hemp growers all over the country right now. And uh, we have herd and bast lying in the fields rotting right now. Sort of the opposite of what, what France and Russia was doing back in the 1800s and 1700s, where it was practically their entire economy. Yeah. The challenge is where do you take it and how much can they do? And what's the decortification de capabilities? And then out of decortification, what are the applications you're going to use it in? And so there are very strong technology applications. One we looked at in Switzerland, for example. Um, but where I'm so just sort of to the point for Carlos, that's where I would see a business opportunity. The reason I'm excited about um, New York is I suspect when they're issuing licenses for people to be recreational producers, they're not going to say, well, do you have a good strategy on security? Everybody has to have one or you're really not very bright. You have a, do you have like a, a, a strategy on, you know, um, not allowing sprays on the crop. Great. That, that, that's a lighting strategy. No, those are all, everybody has to have it. So I think they're going to ask a question, which is what's your strategy on sharing throughout the organization? the wealth created and the reason that matters a lot to me is in high tech they would have called it stock options so gary suppose you joined my company today and we're trading at a 10 million dollar valuation and the stock therefore is one dollar i give you access to i don't know a chunk of equity at one dollar and you get a third of it each year for three years and if we work collaboratively and we're aligned, instead of being worth $1 at the end of year two, maybe it's worth $5 and then $20 and then $50. And what you make is the number of units times the difference between $1 and the share price. And I think that it's super important because um, that's the sort of thing you could have a question on your license to say, show me the strategy and the distribution from the top of the organization to the bottom. So it's not just one person, male, female, whatever color at the top getting rich. 
but it's a distribution of wealth and returns. It can be profit sharing and equity. So it's not just big business through the whole place. Now, do you see a danger impact? That that will be, I can guarantee you, as you go down the org chart, the representation of disadvantage increases. You didn't graduate from Harvard to say, I want to be the janitor. I, I like that model, Bruce. I mean, that that makes sense. Building up your company together, bringing the person, you know, from the from the CEO all the way to the bud tender, uh, you know, who's customer facing, making sure everybody has a piece of the company and, and is invested in that company's success, I think is the opposite of what we often see here uh, in Florida with this vertical top-down approach where the people at the very top are making money and the people at the bottom are just, you know, essentially wage slaves. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I did financially great. I, I, I owned a bunch of the company, but not a, like not like 25% or something. But what I was most happy with the day I got fired, there were over 200 people that were millionaires for just having taken jobs. And if you went down the organization, there were hundreds, thousands of people who'd made 50 to a few hundred thousand dollars. And I can tell you that um, for some of the people, if, you, if, if your job was cleaning the building, all of a sudden what you're getting is like an extra 150 or 200,000 dollars chunk of cash into your world, that is massively shifting what is the potential for who goes to school? Where do they go to school? Um, where do you live? And so I, I just think that New York might get right what I haven't seen in any other geography, which is the inclusion of the stack of the organization in the sharing of the wealth created. I've seen a lot of buzz in regards to moving away from fiat currency and, and heading towards crypto in, rega in regards to mergers and acquisitions. I don't see how that's really possible because of the fact that you're, you're evaluating it on, on data mining, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to me, but that it seems to be a goal of a lot of certain folks who want to stay away from, again, from banking in, in essence. You see that happening? Maybe a little bit. I see most acquisitions are really just you bring two companies together and you make the stock of it one company. Because very seldom do you see like, you know, um, suppose Carlos wants to buy somebody, he's going to drop a million bucks on the table or he's going to say his company's worth two million, I'll give you a million and we become partners in the business. And so the, the number of occasions which cash is a primary consideration is very low. Um, I do think things like these uh, DAOs and things could become very interesting because people want to make, if you want your brand to be important, that's tough. But if what you do is you start to have some of these uh, tokenizations where instead of buying the company, I buy the right to um, vote on what's the hoodie look like that you're going to release. What's the net? What are the key flavors that I want to see in your breeding program so that a year from now I get it. So all of a sudden I'm engaged in, um, I'll call it some of these technology platforms. I could see those being brand builders and I don't care if you're Nike or uh, a one hemp shop. Um, there's a platform of technology that might get more people to cheer for you because they actually participate in some of these tokenized uh, products. Well, let's talk a little bit about MSOs because it's become quite a topic here in the United States where you have certain companies and with all due respect to Canopy that are, are, <clears throat> are doing a lot of absorbing of other companies and, and bringing them yeah. on the fold. And now we don't have retail and wholesalers here in Florida. That's one of my biggest bugaboos. We don't have wholesale, we don't have retail. And so therefore every company can only sell their own brand. So, and, and so therefore, you, you seem to have a lot less diversity of product, a lot less uh, increase in quality, and we don't have a free market. That's, that seems to be the way it, it's ending up there. And I'm, I, I told folks, I think that truly should change their name to Amoeba. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, they, they absorbed Harvest, and they took all the, all the assets, and they spit out the license, and they sold the license to the highest bidder, which happened to be 
uh, fine at 13, and we go on from there. We still have only 22 licenses here, only of which about 15, 16 are actually active. The rest of them are sitting there patiently waiting for adult use, which means that, that once again, we have less of a free market. Mm. And But, we, you know, the, the, these things are problems, all of which create opportunities. And so when I hear what you're describing, it's pseudo parallel to what I was observing in Jamaica. And what I mean by that is, um, how many parishes are in Jamaica? I think 14. I think that's about right. I would. Um, well, no, I just remember things like that, but like, I, there's a lot of stuff I don't remember, but I think it's 14. And so they had these vertically stacked places where someone might all grow in retail and they might be great for uh, where a boat comes in. And the brand idea was, well, that it's Jamaica cannabis. And I thought that was very um, not, not optimal. So my pitch was, wouldn't every dispensary have to allocate at least 50% of their total retail platform pro rata to each of the 14 parishes? So that suppose you're up in a parish and nobody really goes there because it's not one of the two or three tourist places, but you could grow great weed, put it in there, and all of a sudden you might attract some interest to come and see what's going on up there. And at minimum, you would sponsor economic growth in some of those parishes that would otherwise not get any of the financial benefit of the platform of selling Jamaican cannabis. And so my, my pitch was, guys, why don't you legislate access to to the shelf. If your shit's no good and it doesn't sell, your price is wrong. After a while, somebody else will step up and do a better job. Um, and so like in Florida to me, and I, I just, Gary, I'm simply taking your lead. I didn't analyze the circumstance, but oh, feel wouldn't, free. wouldn't it be better just to keep it exactly as it is, but tell them in their stores that they actually have to have 50% of the product presented from these target growers, which have consideration. Maybe they're doing the income distribution. Like I talked about, maybe their licenses are in areas that matter. Like, We'll get to it, but like I think it's super important where they create the product so that those jobs are durable and in ideal locations for people who don't got jobs. And I so, honestly like, wonder what is the benefit, what, what is the, the drive for a lot of the brands and a lot of the products we hear in the state of Florida? I mean, it's not really necessarily patient-centered. I mean, if you need a boutique grow for a particular condition that we need to get work on, like for instance, my daughter has severe chronic migraines. She needs a, a Hong Kong type of strain. And yet if she walks into any of the dispensaries here in Florida and talks to one of the bud tenders, you will see a deer in the headlights looking thing from that, from that, that bud tender, which lets you know that that person only knows how to build a sale and has no concept as what they're actually selling. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't be very helpful in that regard because my interest is more like, how do we use the assumed economic outcome of having cannabis to multiple wins? And so that doesn't really focus as much on the specific products unless it creates multiple wins. But like when I was bugging this morning about like um, Germany's going to have a party. To me, if you look in Canada, where all almost all of the production of cannabis occurred, you know where it occurred? Where there were derelict or abandoned buildings, high unemployment and tons of power sitting there unused. Why? The buildings are cheap. The people say, I love you because they're going to get a job. And you don't have to wait for utilities to bring you electricity. Now, if that to me describes East Germany. So like if I had the job of regulating cannabis for a party in Germany, I would issue licenses to people that actually created durable jobs for folks in geographies where there aren't that many great jobs. And so like, I, I just think that my enthusiasm is about the multiple torque opportunities on things like a party. Um, so here's, 
And I have in East Germany. I've never actually been to East Germany, but it's a lot like the crappy town I started Canopy Tweed in called Smith Falls. Smith Falls is essentially the East Germany of Canada, right? Every business that used to be there left. All the buildings were empty, and most of the people who could leave had left. Bruce, I wanted to ask you, um, one of the issues that we're struggling here in Florida right now, and, and Gary and I are working to push the legislation through, is to provide uh, employment protections for medical marijuana patients. Uh, is there any other you know, countries or states that you've operated in or looked in that, that have this same issue, or is this uniquely an American thing where we say, oh, this is a good medicine, you can use it, but then you also can't, you, we also keep the same model of you can use your, lose your job for using it? Yeah, no, that, that is, um, it's something I hear about, but I am very limited exposure to. It strikes me as unthinkable and bizarre, um, but I know it is real. Um, so to me, it is um, part of what I think the obligation on an employee is if they were for any reason provided anything, which may impair the ability to run the forklift, be clear about can't run the forklift because I'm, I'm using painkillers or whatever weed, but um, there should be a there should be methods by which the work obligations are re reshaped to reflect the health obligations of the person. Um, to me, this is just, you know, like it feels like something you're telling me that was happening in Colorado in the '70s when Coors was run by one guy and he liked to go and look in the ashtrays, like um, <laughs> of the cars. You know what I mean? It just seems like. Um, it seems very bizarre. If you have a good person working for you, you usually want to keep them, not come up with fake reasons to get rid of them. Well, I bring it up because uh, this this week, Utah's lawmakers uh, have advanced a bill to their governor's desk to protect state employees from workplace discrimination for medical cannabis use. And this watered down proposal is exactly what we've gotten here in Florida uh, that Gary and I originally we wanted all workers to have the right to utilize it. And now political realities have asked us to water the bill down to just state employees. And it, that's a major concern because, you know, uh, we have teachers being fired, good good administrators being fired, uh, and even when their doctors have recommended this as their only uh, way to, to utilize this. I mean, just last month, the, the New Hampshire Supreme Court uh, ruled that a private employer cannot fire a worker solely based upon a drug test failure for their medical cannabis consumption. And so we still, as we move forward with these laws, uh, this is what we are seeing with normal as, as our mission is to help clean up you know, the folks that are being left in the dust with all this progress. Yeah, it sounds to me, though, that you probably spend quite a bit of time thinking, like, I'm not going to knock all of the bowling pins down at once. Strategically, which ones do I need to hit? And so, like, maybe it is state, maybe it isn't. But to me, I, if I'm strategically trying to achieve something, I like people that are hard to argue with to be on my side. And I, I find, like, um, cohorts of society are harder to argue with. Like if you're a reasonably well-off uh, woman um, who is in charge of a bunch of things around the household and has a great job, um, you're not as easy to argue with as somebody who's got less power. And so um, I assume your state employees and others may be a good cohort. I just don't know. I don't know how effective they are in terms of knocking all the pins down for you. Well, you, you, you briefly touched on the idea of regards to how politics and how the hierarchy of government in, the, in a particular country does have kind of a top-down approaches to how it changes everything and the way it works. Now, I had the absolute 
pleasure of meeting uh, ex-Prime Minister Campbell and discussing with her as to how she came up with the idea of moving Canada forward as far as legalization. She actually had a copy of the Schaefer Report in her hand, which I, I found absolutely amazing because I've gone to politicians all the way as far up as I can go, and they've never even heard of it. They have no idea that we actually had a Congress that actually said at one point in time, this should not be an offense. Yeah. Tell, um, tell me how Canada evolved. Well, it's funny because, and I just want a little bit, like, I found that our um, service people, military people were a very, very effective cohort in terms of employment rights and employment continuation, even when using cannabis. But um, Canada had zero political will on this topic. And I wasn't around. I appreciate the people who did the work at this time. Um, I benefited as the baton landed with me, but um, they used our courts. And we have a funny thing in Canada that says if there's evidence that a particular ingredient provides medical benefit, you cannot legally withhold it from a Canadian citizen. So it's, it's kind of like a simple argument. Like if this makes you less ill, we can't say, well, we don't like it. And so um, that and a bunch of agitation really began in 2001, creating a framework by the, which the courts defined access, not politicians. And bureaucrats were handed an outcome of a court case and told, Congrats, now figure out what the hell to do with that. And so for quite a long time, the bureaucrats in charge of it weren't super eager because they didn't have political support and they're being told by a court to do something. That leaves you kind of in an awkward spot as a bureaucrat. And so they meandered with more court cases and that went on for about 12 or 13 years until we actually had like a Republican equivalent of government running the country who put in the framework that the party could have never happened if they didn't put in the framework for medical access. So like, imagine a Republican government equivalent saying, we're going to actually be the first political party to step forward and we're gonna make a framework for medical access. You say, well, why would they be motivated to do that? They didn't actually like medical patients to my experience. What they disliked was the enforcement officers of the police having a difficulty of operating their job of who's a bad guy, who's a good guy, because they couldn't tell who had the right to grow cannabis and who might just be growing a lot of cannabis under a medical system versus not a medical system. And so like um, they were motivated because typically in Canada, if you're like the Republicans, what you really like are when the police are happy because a huge proportion of your voters tend to like the police. And so where we started to have pressure on that evolution came from that point. The most bizarre thing happened though, um, the bias of places like pharmacies, pharmacies, all of them said in all of the lead up hearings, we will never, ever sell cannabis. And, and that was to me, terrific news because that meant, so you're going to lose business and I get it. And I don't have to talk to you about taking a cut of my business at all. Right. So I, I was, I was, I was gyrating. I was levitating when I, I was seeing this positioning. And I thought for sure everybody's going to start one, but that was 2013 hearings, 2012. And then by 2014 in June, they released the rules by which you could apply for a license in Canada, which became the medical system. That medical system ran for two or three or four years before we had a party. And had it not been in place and had it not become sort of a substantial scale platform, it would have been a pretty short party for Trudeau because there would have been like five minutes of weed and that would have been it. And, and so, uh, bizarrely, in our country, the Republicans made the first move, the Democrats laid the second growth business on top of it, 
And now if you oppose it in Canada, people be like, are you aware of anything? Like there's, 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 there's zero effective political discussion or debate about it, period. And probably the biggest pain is like things like the medical association, because these guys are still kind of knobs about it. Like they said, well, now that we're going to have a recreational program, we no longer need to have a medical program. That came from the, the head of the medical program, who I've never met, but I'm going to go with stale, male and pale as my assumption. <laughs> as long as his last name isn't Ford, I guess it had at least some kind of mentation yeah. behind it. But even so, Ford's the premier of a province, a state, who said, you know what, when he took over, the, the good plan had been, we're going to have the government open stores for retail. And anybody who's watched it, like Canadian governments move super slow compared to even a lot of state governments at a municipal or a province level. And he said, that's just a bad plan. Now we're going to open it up and let the private sector open all the stores. Good God. Like, it's very challenging in Canada to find a place to buy a retail sale, say, for beer compared to cannabis now. Like, in the main street in Toronto, there's one liquor store, and I believe there are 11 cannabis stores. Nice. So... um I think I want love to... a honey honeypot, by the way, in, on Young Street. I love that honeypot. Yeah, well, those guys were one of the first licenses to get open, and they have a good location. But what I'm my simple point would be, um, I, I like the fact that I think the strength of what's occurred in Canada is nobody was the sole pur purveyor or sell, sole promoter, and the result is we're to the other side of this cavern, and now I think where we lost our way simply is that the federal government should have put up institutional chairs and in researching cannabinoids and they should have said we want them to be in areas from veterinarian science through any human field and they have all kinds of institutionalized chairs of expertise and all kinds of topics but they don't for this and the effect is that canada i think has underperformed on what they're creating that could be super future valuable and instead they're quite fixated on retail cannabis and i'm not negative on that i just think you're missing the point like we still don't have a veterinarian in canada who's allowed to give cannabis to an animal not even cbd nothing nothing organized so one of my friends registered a very smart trademark called tested on humans <laughs> think about it all the shampoo that i don't use and should um, a lot of this stuff gets tested on animals and all these drugs get tested on animals. Instead, we got like all this history and experience of testing it on human. And we're still not, we don't have a pathway for animals. And the reason is since 2001, we've had humans having legal access in Canada at a federal level, but no dogs. And so they don't know what the fuck it does to a dog. They know exactly what it might do to me and they can put me in an observational trial. So just, there are things like that that I still see material disconnects between the possible applications, the future use and, and durable long-term benefits and what governments have structured. A lot of people often say in the United States uh, that unfortunately the anti-vaxxers that we're all part of a, a giant experiment, we're all being tested on. And yet I, I find it in cannabis, almost all the research had to be done on that Boof that came out of University of Mississippi that we've been dealing with that 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 old freeze dried rotting stuff that they gave us to go ahead and do research on, which didn't really advance the research of cannabis whatsoever. So almost all of the actual research was done on, on an insidious basis, 
with the, as we now call the legacy market, where all the smarts were, were coming out of the folks who were not legal to do it, but they still had the ethics to go ahead and move forward on it. Yeah, you know, we have um, a bunch of folks who who um, became scientists during COVID, uh, apparently. <laughs> um, and, and there are a lot of them. It's like some of them are guys I know, and I'm like, your body's not a temple. I've known you long enough, and I remember when you were buying product in Ziplocs, you were not asking, was this sprayed or anything? You were just fucking happy to get it. So, like, the fact that you're a scientist now and your body's a temple seems um, out of sorts with my prior experience with you. But, um, you know, everybody can do what they want as long as they just stay out of the way of the truly sick people with cancers and heart disease and stuff. Our hospitals don't have the same emergency capacity as um, the U.S., and so if you get a traffic jam at the front door, it can mean that the person with cancer or heart disease dies because somebody else is stuck in the lineup in front of them. And I, I just I, I just like to stay out of the lineup. So the combination of my body not being a temple and I don't want to be a traffic jam causer, just give me whatever you want to give me. I'll, I'll take your shot or not, whatever you want. My, my body's not a temple. My body's a Catholic church full of wine, <laughs> incense, and guilt. <laughs> <laughs> you got the right hair, man. You're all good. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's actually funny. It's actually, I'm going to try and work that in somewhere because it is. <laughs> Especially when you weave in the, the, the wine and the guilt. It, uh, yeah. Bruce, I so, have uh, to ask you, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, as a, all the time. an American in cannabis talking to a Canadian in cannabis, what's the difference between marketing cannabis to Canadians than Americans? Um, That's a so good I was question. wrong about a couple of things. It was when we had a medical program, we had way less rules. So you could actually build brands. You didn't have big stop signs on the container. The branding was way more fun and identifiable. And... Mm. Um, I would say that the surprising part to me has been how, and in the US, how durable and, and strong response people have had to flower brands. I, my thesis was that most things would only be brandable when they were measured in milligrams. And that really is, is because when you take the milligrams out, you don't just throw them on the table, you combine them with other elements. And when you combine them with other elements, other inputs, the milligram dosed item can either be a science-driven agenda or can be combinations that could be really durable and unique and instead i was wrong the um the durability and the demand for flower brands uh has caught me off guard in canada and in the u.s um canadians and i find americans are very similar it's a big difference between west coast and east coast like on the west coast everybody's like they want to know the five generational history of the weed and on the <laughs> east coast they're like fan fucking tastic you have it and so um, um, I find that that is very common across both countries. Um, on the East Coast, we still have people who all think they're Snoop Dogg. Like they're, they're begging somebody to have like 40% THC because they think that's what they need. Like we're just, we're still very, very, very early stages where people's principal interest still is in how strong versus talking about flavors and things. But um the conversation is moving quite quickly, I would say, in Canada, and I, I see it a bit more in the U.S. too. Well, I th one thing I saw in Canada is you do have lower THC levels, but actually more increase in regards to terpene levels. And, and they're starting to report and label on the terpene levels. You know, the initial labeling was very simple, and I would say that the C of A's are starting to increase what people can actually discern and understand and make choices on. Um, 
But I would say that Canadians have really rapidly uh, migrated to the legally available product in part because their orientation to safety, right? Like buying legal just means, you know, with certainty what you're getting. And, um, it's really, it, it it's surprising. Like more than 50% of the market has shifted. Now, one thing I also noticed, of course, in, in regards to public use is concerned. I mean, in, in Toronto, at least, yeah, you can walk down the street with a pre-roll in your hand. And as long as you don't go inside any buildings, you're safe. You won't, you won't be arrested unless you actually walk inside of a building. So Yeah. But you know what's really, um, because of COVID and restricted uh, consumption environments, I think it's really actually been stronger for some of the heat not burn. Because it, it does result in um, landlords being less bothered. Um, but the, the biggest loser, I think, out of uh, COVID for the cannabis formats has been beverages. And I say that in that at least two summers ago, the government of the largest province in our country was going to start having concert special occasion permits where the event and venue would have a range of beverages, none of which had alcohol, all of which had cannabis for outdoor concerts. You know what happened? All the concerts got canceled. And so the, the platform of introduction hasn't happened yet. But I would think that the summer of 2022 might. And if you want somebody to like a beverage, put them on a lawn, at a good concert, give them three or four. Guess hey. what? They're going to go, hey, you know what? Had a good time at that. Don't have a hangover. I don't have to go to the gym today because like the total calories consumed were six. Um, and so I just think that the COVID uh, impact on the launching pad of beverages is yet to be understood. Now, are you saying that, that, that Dixie elixirs and, uh, and can are nothing compared to BioSteel? Um, I think I, I bought BioSteel because I thought that they had a better hydration product than Gatorade and that they had no CBD extension on it. And that when WADA, the entities which regulate Olympics, say that CBD is not a performance enhancing drug, which means you could actually have those people buying your product. And if you have the right dosage, I think it is performance enhancing and that it will more rapidly uh, help you recover from something that would be an inflammatory kind of response workout. Um, I think it's a killer platform to take that science forward. I'm talking about though our uh, THC driven beverages that are not really uh, as logically a biosteel extension. Yeah, we, we, we have HaHa now, I guess, coming out of Planet 13 as well. So we got, we got a number of, uh, of beverages uh, on the horizon. Yeah. For those folks who don't know, BioSteel is one of Canopy's brands in regards to drinks are concerned. But in, in regard to Trip and those good folks over at uh, Elixirs, yeah, we, we we are we are getting past just the original concept of using the the, uh, the nano products and actually getting a, a smooth beverage. Yeah, so and you know what, they, they can taste um, essentially any way you wish to engineer them. Part of what I like about the on ramp is if you do it properly, you know, a two and a half milligram beverage. Uh, is a great format in that it causes multiple sales. And so, well, why is that good? Suppose you set up a bar and a customer comes in, you only get to sell them one drink. How's your business model feeling? <laughs> right? And so I think that um, the social platform of a multi-consumption beverage that utilizes a nice cube of ice, a clear glass, and um, it doesn't have to, because the technologies now, you don't have to super over flavor it with, strawberry and you don't have to hide the color you can actually start to feel like a sophisticated beverage and so i i just think there's um we'll see after concerts start happening and venues start to be licensed um 
what happens to those. Bruce, you mentioned earlier about the difference in cannabis culture between East and West Coast in Canada. Um, you know, we see those same parallels here in the U.S., but the heartland is like the last bastion of prohibition here in the U.S. So do you all have, you know, similar sentiments in Alberta and Saskatchewan, Manitoba? Well, I, just the fact that you named those provinces, I'm very impressed. Um, <laughs> it's the, about um, George Island. <laughs> no, you, you know, what's quite interesting is each of them may have used so Alberta or say Saskatchewan, which are, are tend to be more Texas-like, what they've done on their distribution is go lean in super hard on private sector, do it. And so like, you don't have even, they've shut down even a government warehouse. Like, why do you need it? They just let everything get directly to the private sector. But after that, they're all fully game on because, you know, this is a stream of income to every state in the world that needs income and every state in the world need income. And so I, I haven't seen anything other than perhaps more efficient models adopted where the private sector is principally or exclusively in charge. Um, there, I, I'm telling you, I cannot recall in the last four years any meaningful political comment about why this is a bad platform to have a nationally fully legal system in place. So, but now, if Canada has a national system, but they also have an overlay of, of provincial laws, correct? So there's there's a, a combination of both. Yeah, so it's federally available, and then it's the province's job to figure out how. So the feds say, no, nobody's going to jail for this. And then the provinces, some of them have provincial stores like Quebec. Some of them have zero provincial input like, say, Alberta. And some hybridize. But um, there, there's... Um, there's there's been no provinces and it would be like even some cities in provinces initially said oh not in our city and so um all you had to do is advocate so i i had a city where we started this called smith falls in a town about 20 miles away thought that they were a bit more sophisticated than smith falls and they were opposed to cannabis so i said you guys should definitely stay opposed to cannabis i 100 percent agree because what's going to happen is when people want cannabis, they're going to get in their car and they're going to drive to our town. When they get to our town, you know, they're going to buy some groceries, some gas. I said, before you know it, if you can be opposed to enough things, your town might actually not even exist anymore. It'll be fantastic. It'll be a bedroom community, part of, part of the greater Smith Falls area, because you won't even have an urban core. You're just going to be completely hollowed out. Terrific policy. Keep it up. I'd love to see a, a thriving community in something like Brome over in, uh, in Quebec where you're, you're so far away from practically everything else. So you, you do have a, your own microcosm, your own inner culture. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and just as we're wrapping up, I still think that people have to appreciate globally, this is a great thing going on. And the rules say the party can happen only with domestic production. And so I keep hitting on that in that I, I worry for the US and I think the bill they have this named in is a good branding name for the sixth time to try and get private. But the world's rapidly shifting, deploying capital, creating products, creating outcomes that people want to buy with no hands tied behind their back. And in the U.S., they continue to tie entrepreneurs' hands behind their back and trying to loop one foot in there. And, and it, is, it is a global race for creating brands, products. And everybody say, well, no, it's, it's really, it's a West Coast thing. We're always going to own the brand. Yeah, but... What about when things become milligrams? And what about like when Mars and Nestle are in this business because they've got animal care products that are awesome? Did they get those in California? Probably not. And so if you just keep clunking out where this could go, um, 
I believe all entrepreneur-minded people in America should be in favor of a clear statement of what is the intent for creating a framework for cannabis so that we cannot be globally disadvantaged any longer. Now, one thing Bruce, I, I think we have to touch a, on, go that, ahead, Chris. Well, I was gonna say that's a fantastic segue into something Carlos can post on the screen. You know, uh, President Biden on the campaign trail uh, made this promise to make sure cannabis became legal. And we want him to follow through on his commitment. But more than that, he also committed to making sure that marijuana records got expunged. So, you know, it's, uh, go to the link, tell President Biden to follow through on his commitments, on his promises. Uh, we, we are expecting a lot more of that. And the midterms are coming up. If Democrats want to hold on to power, they need to get their shit together and legalize cannabis like I've been telling them for two decades. Well, and I, I think it's probably the biggest financial file which America finds themselves most disproportionately disadvantaged globally on. Like, if you just step out, like, this is not a fight about the U.S. only. This is like every other entrepreneur outside of America should be funding to keep it as crazy as it is in America because it means there are almost no American businesses of any substantial nature doing anything else in the world. So, like, it's a bit like, like the guy in Colorado, he, you know, he probably wishes he'd played the game a bit more like Nevada, right? Where gambling was Nevada's thing only and Nevada did super well for a long time. If you step back one step and look at like the U.S. continually finds ways to disadvantage themselves in the, one of the biggest trades that's going to happen under a, a regime of regulation in which they won't be included. There's one, there's one topic I have to touch on before you go, and that is social equity. Something that the people in Florida have no clue as to what it actually is because their current legislation has one minority having one license, and that is considered social equity in their play, their path. And even though I throw out the word tokenism at them, it just goes right past them. Talk a little bit about gauge versus everybody. Yeah. Well, so there's two things in there. So there's my first point, which I'd said earlier. I, I, I think social equity is a process by which all licenses should be granted to those methods which they share the returns through the organization because the social disadvantages increase the further you go down the payroll pack. So that that's my first thing. And accountants will tell you that's tough. No, it's not tough to do. You can do it. Um, with gauge, you know, the, these guys, they, they, one of their dispensaries, the quicken one is on eight mile road, right? Like familiar so with it. Yeah. They have, um, they have an obligation and, and a method by which they're trying to actually fund initiatives so that they basically balance prior injustices while using the, I'll call it the rapidly growing business that gives them strength to support those initiatives. And when I was in Florida, one of the meetings I had is, um, I will be getting involved this week with some um, very interesting ladies that have a actual production asset right in Detroit. And um, they, they are part of the whole brand process where we're going to start to see brands that come out that represent a diversity of perspectives that are more authentic than just California blonde people in Volkswagens listening to 60s tunes kind of brand themes. And so um, classics. Um, I'd say those gauges tried to fund. They're still trying to make sure they contribute more. The state has an opportunity. But my thing is every company should be held to task to look at how they're distributing through alignment through the organization. Well, one thing I got to comment on Gage is I'm looking at their website, looking at their prices, and they're right on point with where the legacy market is in many ways. So um, I, I, that's a you know the way they've been able to position their price points uh, yeah. is is healthy for consumers, which is great. 
Well, and that's why you see huge basket size because nobody's dropping money at any place that's not part of the licensed world, right? Like basket size, how much people buy is if you get 100% of their buying power at your place is different than if you don't. Now they have retailers, what they call provisioners in, in Michigan, or you can go in, into any of the ones like uh, House of Dank and things of that sort over in Detroit. And you can, you can look at a hundred brands as you walk in the front door and they're all right there for you, for you to choose from, as opposed to saying, yeah, well, we actually have four strains, but we're out of three of them, which yeah. is basically what they have over here in Florida. Yeah. I, um, I didn't do any uh, Florida exploring on this basis when I was down there. Cause I felt like when you have to have medical access and all these things, you go as a Canadian, like, You're I don't invited. know. I'll bring, come on down. We'll talk. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like it just, um, it didn't get my interest level up to go. Well, Carlos, you got the, you got the last word, last question for Bruce before we move on to the commercial announcements uh, to wrap up. Honestly, Bruce, I just wanted you to let people know, uh, how, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find you? How can they support you? Oh, um, well, last time I got fired, I decided I would keep, I would have a forever email. So I'd had the domain Bruce, linton.com and so i decided a super easy email would be to have bruce at bruce linton.com mm -hmm. and if people can't find me then they probably shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks for being on the show today yeah appreciate uh, it, thanks no, it's, uh, it's a shout out because uh i gotta say uh gary like hey would you like to spend sunday morning at your computer the answer has historically been no so <laughs> thanks be well guys I find myself honored. And just a program note, next week's guest is, is very exciting to me. Malcolm McKinnon is going to be on here today, the, uh, the original uh, editor-in-chief of High Times Magazine, who has practically talked to every single icon. You know, he, 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 he smoked a, a dube with Jack Hare. Yeah, that well, alone well, gives gives well, him well, let's threat. promo. I I've already put some of his uh, pictures that most people would notice on the screen here. So there you go. Well, you know, interesting about Jack Career, Gary, when I was writing my master's thesis uh, at USF, one of the biggest things was pulling from his research uh, with the emperor wears no clothes and combining it with much of the research from the Schaefer report. So I wouldn't have my master's degree if it wasn't for Jack Career today. <laughs> so how can we legalize cannabis in Florida, guys? Well, well join Suncoast, right? Go ahead. Give us the, give us the commercial, Chris. Well, you got to join Suncoast Normal. I mean, uh, people constantly ask me, how can I become a member? How can I become a member? Very simple. Go to suncoastnormal.org. Uh, you go to the membership section, sign up to be a member. Uh, we take, you know, debit card, credit card, PayPal, uh, and you can sign up there. And again, if you become a member of Suncoast Normal, you can pick up your membership packets uh, at there, at Chillum in Ybor City. Uh, we have your where it all began and you have your beautiful gold uh, leaf lapel pin your suncoast normal membership card and your 25 percent discount at chillum uh cbd dispensary and glass gallery and carlos has an amazing array of products he's remodeled the place you definitely want to come check it out and see all the amazing uh water pipes that he has available to you in addition to all the modern vaporizers and uh herbal infusers that he sells but uh, be beyond that uh, i think it's also important to realize that we're doing a lot here uh you know to make sure that the industry in Florida becomes patient-centric and that it is serving the patients for best of its ability. So one of the things that we're going to be pulling together is this spring, uh, we're going to have a Tampa Bay Cannabis Business Expo. 
And if oh, you are, if you are, uh, if, if you are wanting to get into the cannabis uh, industry, if you're already a member of the cannabis industry and you want to showcase your business, uh, and whether that's a hemp business or whether uh, you're an MMTC or a doctor's office, or even if you're a law firm, uh, get in touch with us, info at suncoastnormal.org. Uh, we're currently accepting uh, uh, pitches for sponsorship, and we will definitely uh, be looking forward to having this great uh, Tampa Bay Business Expo here in the city of Tampa. Yeah, looking forward to it over there on, on Hillsborough and 50th. It's going to be a very interesting concept. I should pitch a business. In, in, the, in the shadow of the Hard Rock Casino. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have a lot of interesting panels that, that folks can get an opportunity to hear from, as well as we're going to have a Pacific panels on women in cannabis. So we're going to create a very diverse expo. Uh, much, uh, I love the way Bruce uh, said it. There'll be less stale, pale uh, guys uh, on the panel that you have to hear from, and a lot more uh, diversity and interesting folks that you get a, a chance to hear from at our panel. I'm not pale. Not you're, at all. You're kind of pale. But it, it was so nice to have somebody on, the bo- on board who can actually pronounce the word about in a, in a more proper way. Isn't that right? That, that, that's what it's all about. When he said a boot, I started smiling. I was like, he said a boot. I wanted to, I wanted to say something. You can't not smile. I'm happy you guys said something. We are on the air though. Bye everybody. We love y'all. Bye. Bye. That guy thinks I'm waving at him. Hey. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This has been The Rotation, and you have been a part of it. You can be a bigger part of it by joining Suncoast Normal. Suncoast Normal is an organization that can help you make the change that we all need. Go to the Suncoast Normal website and become a member, because that is how you become part of the change you can find the rotation podcast on both soundcloud and itunes but you can always join us in the rotation at suncoastnormal.org at that very website you can join the cannabis movement by becoming a member of suncoast normal gain access to cannabis events cannabis info normal's legal network and even a free membership to national all by joining suncoast normal that website again is suncoast norml.org you can also find us on social media at suncoast normal uh find us on both facebook twitter instagram and youtube and thank you gary and good night good night